Welcome to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. Did you know that over 95% of all businesses fail within the first 10 years? By listening in to what Bob's guests have to say, plus direction from Bob Pritchard himself, it's our intention that you won't be among those statistics. Now, here's your host, Bob Pritchard. Hello, world. Welcome to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show and Voice America Business Channel. We're broadcasting across the world from Hollywood Boulevard in California, the center of Silicon Beach, which is the third most important center for entrepreneurs, incubators, and accelerators in the world. Another magnificent day in Southern California, looking out across the whole city and the west side of LA, and it's absolutely beautiful. It's about 85 degrees and lovely. And as I think I've mentioned before, right outside my studio is a 10 foot by 7 foot spa, which is looking, bubbling away and looking extremely inviting right about now. So I think that'll be first stop after the show's finished. Now, a new report from cybersecurity specialist Kapersky Lab reveals that gangs of highly sophisticated cyber criminals they're recruiting people at various levels in telcos and service provider companies to become suborned insiders, allowing cyber attackers to gain access to network and subscriber data. Now, the report shows that 28% of all DDoS, which is um, distributed denial of service attacks, and uh, 38% of targeted cyber attacks involved skilled, knowledgeable, disaffected or just plain greedy employees of telcos and service providers. So they're not necessarily all big bad Russians in Moscow. They're people that um, they may be paid by big bad guys in Moscow. Now these criminal gangs are not above threats, intimidation and blunt force forced trauma. The uh, insider targets that can't be bribed are often blackmailed into betraying their companies because, irony of ironies, the gangs use compromising personal information that they glean from open sources and they use this as ammunition to scare telco employees into compliance. It's pretty scary. Just goes to show you these days with everything the way it is, You've really got to be a good guy, don't you? I mean, if you're a bad guy, you might have fun for a bit, but you're going to get caught. Telco and network operators, they're a prime target of cyber criminals because they hold an unbelievable, enormous treasure trove of sensitive data on both customers and the workings and security of the telco and ISP networks themselves. So a data breach is not as hard as it seems. Kaspersky Lab reveals that the cyber gangs first approach and tempt disenchanted employees via hidden underground message boards on the dark web or via the intermediary services of middlemen recruiters. And if that fails, the gang falls back to the blackmail option, help us or else, because it's so easy to apply and it ensures continual compliance and it costs nothing to enforce. So it's just like an episode of Law and Order. The cyber gangs most heavily target executives who have direct and fast access to subscriber and corporate data, whether it's a fixed line or mobile operator, doesn't really matter. On the mobile front, access to SIM card data is the most highly prized of all. If an attempt on an ISP is about to be mounted, the gangs will try to get at staff who could be used for network mapping and so-called manned-in-the-middle attacks. Kaspersky Lab says the human factor is often the weakest link in corporate IC security. I would say that Kaspersky have half got it right. I reckon human factor's got to be the weakest link because we're all um, troubled souls and we can get um, blackmailed pretty easy. Now, technology alone is rarely enough to protect the organisation in a world where attackers don't hesitate to um, exploit 
insider vulnerabilities. Companies can start by looking at themselves the way that an attacker would. So to protect against insider threat, Kapersky Lab advises that telco and service provider staff should be made officially cognizant of their responsibility and acceptable cybersecurity behaviour, as well as the danger signals indicating a cyber attack may be imminent. Now, monitoring of employee compliance with required cybersecurity regimes must be introduced. You have to bring that in as soon as possible. Furthermore, the company should have in place robust and policeable policies on corporate and individual email addresses. Now, as we've seen, there's a cyber attack at least once a day of somebody large and of small companies, probably dozens or hundreds of them. So it's not only the big guys that need to be afraid, it's the little guys too. It's also advisable to use a threat intelligence service to understand why cyber criminals might be looking at a company and to determine if an employee has been tempted or forced into providing insider information to criminals. A um, threat intelligence service will soon find them. Other recommended actions are to restrict access to the most sensitive internal information and systems and conduct regular and sweeping security audits audits of IT infrastructure. Now, classic format is one where top and middle ranking executives get a cleverly spoofed email that most of them will happily open because it's from a reputable and trusted address and the company with which the telco or ISP has previously done business. Now, that's really simple. However, the email contains hidden and compressed executable malware that opens the door through which criminals can steal highly sensitive and invaluable information, such as passwords, keystrokes, and FTB server credentials. The report emphasises that insider threats can take a myriad of forms. One example given is of a rogue telecoms employee who leaked an incredible 70 million phone calls from prison inmates, thus totally breaching client attorney privilege and occasioning highly expensive retrials. I don't know whether you spotted this, but the International Olympics Committee just announced that it was hit with 800 million cyber attacks during the 17 or 18 days of the Summer Olympics in Rio. 800 million. That's four times the rate that was endured at the London Games of 212. Another major challenge is the need to recruit, develop and retain really great, smart people to our business. At the same time, how do we keep on top of the right structure and how do we upskill the staff? Now, in the past, you'd get hired because of what you knew or who you knew. Today, more often than not, you get hired because of what you're willing to learn. And another one bites the dust. At its peak, One King's Lane was worth $900 million, was nearly a member of the exclusive Unicorn Billion Dollar Startup Club, but when it was bought by Bed, Bath and Beyond about a month ago, it sold for 3% of its peak valuation. The Home Goods website was sold for less than 30 million bucks. Now, at the time of the acquisition, Bed, Bath and Beyond declined to disclose the sale price only that the purchase price was not material. Now, One King's Lane was at one point a fast-growing flash sale site for home goods. It raised more than $225 million in venture capital. The site came of age during the Gilt Group era, where flash sales were hugely popular. And One King's Lane once had more than a $900 million valuation. But flash sale sites fell out of favour after about 2010 
and Gilt Group Fab and now One Kings Lane sold for far less than their billion-dollar valuations. Of course, the writing's been on the wall for flash sales for some time. They've been watching Groupon. They've slashed their staff. They've restructured um, and shown CEO and founder Andrew Mason to the door, but also its share price is a mere $3, down from its IPO price of $20. Living Social is also just a shell of its former self, then, of course, there's the very public implosion of design-oriented flash sales site, fab.com. Now, you know, there's always a whole bunch of reasons put forward for why startups fail. And, you know, we all sit back, all of us in the startup world, and we look at Facebook, Airbnb, Twitter, Uber, and a bunch of others and think, oh, that could be us. I'm sure our product's as good as that. We could be part of that club. But only about 5% of startups are successful. In a detailed review of over 2,000 startups, financed with venture capital reveals that more than 95% of them fail to see any return on investment. They fail. They bomb. 95%. And I'm sure at one stage they all thought that they were the next Uber. If 40% of US startups liquidate all of their assets with investors losing all of their money. Startups fail, according to the study, because the old management methods of a good plan, a solid strategy, and thorough market research don't work for startups as they operate with too much uncertainty. I disagree with all that, really. I mean, that's, that's what the report says, but I don't think that's true. I think um, a startup, whether you're a startup or whether you're a um, legacy-type company, you can't beat a good plan, a solid strategy, and thorough market research. Anyway, an analysis of these 2,000 startups shows us the top 20 reasons why startups fail. The first one is insufficient market need. They've invented this fantastic whiz gizmo, but no bastard wants to buy it. It looks cute. That's the trouble. You show people stuff and you usually show your friends and your friends say, wow, that's really cool. I've never seen that before. I'll have one because they know they're going to get it for free. When you've got to put your hand in your pocket and actually pay for it, it's a whole different ballgame. So insufficient market need, 42% fail because of that reason. Ran out of cash. Now, this is a pretty common reason. 29% of all startups run out of money. And once your money's gone, it's very hard to try and keep dredging the pond unless you've got a rich uncle. Poor management team is responsible in 23% of the cases, and I'm surprised there's not more than that. But that's still one in five. But um, I think the can contribution of poor management is more than one in five. Um, I think number five I'm up to, um, beaten by competitors. You know, you just didn't crack it against your competitors. That's about 20%. Price and cost issues is around 18%. A crappy product's at 17%. A poor business model's at 17%. Poor marketing's at 14%. I'm surprised it's that low. Um, mistiming putting your product into the market's about 13%. Disharmony with investors. Now, that's a common one. It's about 13%. Because when you pitch the investors, you tell them how great it is and how you close you are to release and all that sort of stuff. And when you actually get the investors in, you find that it's harder to get the market completed and then harder to get it out into the marketplace and it takes longer and the investors start bitching and all hell breaks loose. A bad pivot is responsible for 10%. Um, The um, entrepreneur loses enthusiasm. Investors are not interested, so you can't raise any more money. That's about 8%. Legal issues is about 8%. I'm, again, I'm surprised that it's that low. 
didn't use advisors, 8%. I'm, again, surprised that it's that low. So there are a whole bunch of reasons why startups fail. Now, you'll notice that this list comes out to about 200% or more. And uh, the reason for that is because um, there's usually more than one reason why startups fail. So some things are counted twice, you know, included twice. And um, the founders have got a big idea and come up with a so-called solution that nobody wants. Now, to me, a successful uh, startup needs three ingredients. It needs a relevant market need, a feasible, simple solution, and a viable business model. If you don't have those three things, you are fucked. That's French for screwed. An important lesson to learn for innovators is to always look for a relevant market need. You know, that's the that's the pain point that the consumer has before you begin to create your simple solution. Now, make sure you subscribe to my daily newsletter, sent out to over 16,000 business executives in over 60 countries every day. It's just a 30-second read. It is so quick, you don't even know you've read it. But when you're finished, you are brimful of fantastic information and you can dazzle your workmates all day with your astonishing knowledge. So it goes out every day. It's 30 seconds to read. Go to my website, bobpritchard.com, and you can subscribe to the newsletter. And now on the website, you'll find um, bobpritchard.com. You'll see a new page called the Bob Pritchard Success Pathway, which is designed to assist international entrepreneurs as well as American entrepreneurs to access contacts, expertise, funding, and skills. And we've established some great global partnerships. So go to the website, have a look at my success pathway. My guest today is Michelle Bayan, great guy. A technology entrepreneur has always been fascinated with what makes humans tick. Michelle is an advisory board member to uh, several tech startups in various industries, but his passion's in direct selling, and uh, he's been creating innovative new technologies for direct sellers since 2010. He is a very, very, very smart boy, and I'll be back with Michelle's great story immediately after this break on the Voice America Business Channel. Do you want your business to achieve results you never thought possible? Bob Pritchard is recognized as the business leader's advisor and has 30 years of experience as a straight-talking troubleshooter for Fortune 500 companies and SMEs across the world. Whether you need a checkup across all departments of your business or simply want to improve marketing, advertising, performance measurement, or some other area, Bob Pritchard will work his magic so you can blow away your competition. Bob Pritchard is also one of the most in-demand speakers in the world. Over 1,500 clients on five continents and countless standing ovations are a testament to how he changes the fortunes of business. Pick up Bob's new book, Kick-Ass Business and Marketing Secrets, at your nearest bookstore or visit Bob's website at www.bobpritchard.com. Remember, if you want to be successful, call Bob Pritchard now. Worldwide phone numbers and more information can be found at bobpritchard.com. You are listening to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. To connect with Bob, please send an email to bob at bobpritchard.com. That's bob at bobpritchard.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back to the Bob Pritchard Straight Talking Radio Show, where over the past five and a half years, we've given you insights into the lives of over about 300, I think, of the world's most interesting business people, what it is that they do. And we try to find out what makes them tick. You know, it's extremely difficult to um, create a successful business. 95% of businesses fail. And uh, so the people that make a successful business are those that have learnt some of the tricks. And that's why it's important that 
entrepreneurs listen to as many interviews as they can, buy books on successful business people and read the trades and uh, stay abreast of, of what's going on and take advice from people who have been successful. You know, everybody faces the same challenges. It doesn't matter what business you're in. And uh, everybody initially starts off thinking that they've got a great product and as soon as they release it, everybody will beat a path to their door. But it doesn't work like that. Most entrepreneurs and experts um, have a great product, but it's the other aspects of running a business and raising money that usually let them down. So that's why it's important that we follow, observe and listen to those who have overcome these problems before us. My guest today, Michelle Bayan, is a technology entrepreneur who's always been fascinated with humans and what makes us tick. She's, I think if you can solve that problem, you can just about solve any problem. Is um, the founder of boutique agency Mingling Media, where his team helps startups develop their early strategies and get their early products built. He's an advisory board member to several tech startups in various industries, but his passion is in direct selling. And Michelle has been creative, innovative, new technologies for direct sellers since 2010. Direct selling is an amazing industry. It's a $186 billion global marketing channel, and it offers its, um, all the various products and services through over 100 million independent sales reps. It's a huge business, and sometimes, a lot of times we forget about direct sale, selling, don't we? Um, his latest venture, Tech Direct, sorry, Direct Tech Labs, uses machine learning to help direct selling companies understand their sellers at an entirely new level. So let's talk to Michelle and find out what it's about. Hi, Michelle. Welcome to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. Hey, Bob. It's great to be back. Thanks for having me again. What is machine learning? It sounds awful mechanical. Uh, it can seem kind of scary. You know, it, it, uh, it's a form of artificial intelligence. So sometimes it makes people a little bit nervous and they start thinking about the Terminator and Doomsday and, <laughs> and all of that. But, uh, but machine, really, machine learning is a, a fascinating piece of technology uh, of data science. And what it allows us to do is essentially program a computer. They actually don't use the word programming. They call it the word training now. Uh, training a computer to, in essence, do some kind of simple problem-solving thinking and learning. So a model, or a, a, some people call it a robot or, a, or an algorithm, um, basically we just call it the model, is trained to uh, d- discover and uncover certain problems. In our, in our case at Direct Tech Labs, we use it and are starting to use it to focus toward churn, to basically be able to predict in advance if a distributor in a direct selling company is in danger of quitting or churning out of that business. Right. Um, and so what machine learning does is not only produce that prediction once, but actually learn from its mistakes over time and grow more and more accurate at doing the prediction or whatever process it is that you're trying to do. Um, So differently from a regular computer, which will always run the exact program the exact same way every single time, no matter what, uh, machine learning is actually capable of learning on its own without a programmer's intervention. How far can it actually advance? I mean, how advanced can this learning get? Doesn't it just learns from what's it's fed in and from predictive analysis of what's happened before? I presume, but how does it? Yeah, how does it get? It's, to, it's a lot about data, and 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 that's we hear the term big data, and it's a kind of a buzzword. But yeah. what big data really means is lots and lots and lots of data. Yeah. and the way that models like what we do work are they're predicting the future based on seeing a lot of information, a really lot of information of what's happened in the past and using very complex mathematics and statistical modeling to see the pattern recognition that a normal human or a data analyst can't see. And inside of that pattern recognition, they start to recognize traits of things that have happened in the past that we're trying to predict into the future. And then it looks at the present and sees if any of those patterns are emerging and, and uses that data to, to predict 
with a certain level of accuracy or with a certain percentage of certainty what, that that same thing might happen in the future and, for example, why it might happen or, or how much it might cost the company to prevent it from happening or what they might be able to do to prevent it from happening. So a lot of this would be modeling based on prior examples, things that have happened in the past. What... Um I've just been reading a fascinating piece about the difference between Generation Zs and, and Millennials, and they're actually quite different. So how does it suddenly adjust to a new set of um, – a, a new audience segment, I guess, that is different mm-hmm. than any audience segment that's gone before it? Does it have to learn again from scratch? No, so that's the interesting part about it is that what machine learning is doing is it isn't um, giving generalizations. It's actually looking at people as individuals and predicting based on that individual's propensity to do something based on people that were either ex- exactly, and as, at, in, when I say exactly, I mean based on the data that it has, so exactly similar to people that have come before or substantively similar. So... Um, I'll give you a great example. Right. Recently, I got my mind blown by American Airlines. Um, I've got both a American Airlines MasterCard where I make transactions for my business yep. and also earn miles on American Airlines. Sure. And uh, I used to fly American Airlines a lot, but I kind of stopped because I just wasn't as happy with them as I was with Virgin America. Okay. So American Airlines saw, um, and, and my suspicion is that it was a machine learning that saw this, saw that there's this guy, Michel Bayon. He's this age, he's this ethnicity. We, we know all the things he's buying and spending and his spending habits, so they're guessing things like how much money I make and you know all different types of things about me that they use in that data. And then they see that I'm making transactions in places that I don't live, so I'm traveling, yes. and that I'm buying tickets on airlines that are not American. Yep. And Americans like, well, wait a minute, this guy's not flying us anymore. And when they do the math, they could see that in the last three or four months, I had probably spent a couple, two or $3,000 on airplane tickets that could have been American airplane tickets. Yeah. And so that computer could have said, huh, well, we got a guy who makes this much money. He's got the money to spend on the tickets. He's doing the traveling. He's not flying American. How do we get him to fly American? And so based on their information about me, it decides what type of offer it wants to give me. And in my email, magically appears in uh, something in my inbox from American. And it says, congratulations, Michelle. We've upgraded you to platinum status for free for the next six months. You're going to get free check bags, priority boarding, faster security lines. If you want to rebook your flight and change it, we won't charge you any change fees, you know, and blah, blah, blah. I was like, awesome. Guess what happened? <laughs> the next two or three thousand dollars were spent on American. Right, that's <laughs> and good. All of that do- was done without a single human being looking at my information or spending even a second of time on me. I might, I might have to switch over to American because I'm, with, I'm with United, and I've flown five million miles, and that I, I, I get the feeling that I don't give a rat's whether I fly with them or not. <laughs> um, oh, bummer. Yeah, we'll try yeah, it. You know, yeah. you never know. <laughs> you never know. Who knows uh, what these computers will decide about you and me and, you know, maybe they'll be like, oh, this guy, Bob, we should give him super duper platinum because, yeah. you know, whatever. Yeah. <laughs> um, so what sort of businesses use, well, we, we've talked about the airlines, but what other sort of businesses would traditionally use machine learning? So right now is kind of the golden age uh, or we're coming into the golden age of artificial intelligence or some people call it applied artificial intelligence. So things like machine learning and uh, natural language processing, which is what Siri is on your iPhone or Alexa and your Amazon. Um, So it's really happening everywhere. A great example for a lot of people is Netflix. So that part of Netflix that is recommending to you what movies and television shows it thinks you're going to like that is actually a machine learning program. And uh, how valuable is that, right? That's the next question. Well, Netflix attributes a billion dollars a year in retention to that one simple feature. That's how valuable it is to them. Wow. So they, they analyze personalities and, and uh, emotional traits and connect that with programming and 
mm-hmm. viewing habits and they see what you like and what you don't like and what you watch and what you don't watch and what people like you like and don't like and watch and don't watch and create this whole profile for you about what they know about you and your name and your email address and if you connected via Facebook and all that different type of stuff and come up with what it thinks you're going to like because Netflix is a subscription, right? So they make money by keeping you on that subscription, which means they've got to continually get stuff in front of you that you're going to want to watch so you don't get bored and cancel your subscription. Okay, so that that brings us on to um, churn. They're they're worried about churn. I guess um, phone companies are certainly worried about churn. So why did you mm-hmm. why did you focus on churn first? Well, I've been involved in the direct selling space. Uh, for about seven years now. Um, I built one of the first mobile CRMs in that space, um, sold it to many, many different companies. I'd, I'd imagine over, over a million direct sellers have probably used the technology that I had a hand in creating at this point. And so I got to know these companies, these multinational large companies, uh, small and large really, uh, over the years. And realized that as I look at the statistics, churn really was the most expensive problem and in my mind, preventable problem that they have. Uh, because of the nature of the way these companies uh, pay their sales reps, yeah. um, every 1% increase in retention that they can gain actually translates to a 5% increase in sales for them. Right. Um, and the, the kind of average churn rate in the direct selling space, especially in the ones that pay with multi-level comp lines, which is about 85% of the companies, um, is about 80% per year. So imagine having a company that even during a phase of intense growth, and some of these companies go through very, very fast, fast hyper growth cycles, right. um, you're still losing 80% of everybody that you bring on within one year and 60 or 70% of them quit within 90 days. So you're really got this amazing engine that you've built to drive a bunch of people into this bucket, but there's a massive hole in the bottom of it. Right. And so we're there to basically help them plug or at least make the hole a lot smaller. And it's probably a hell of a lot cheaper to retain existing customers than it is to go out and win them back um, again after they've tried you once. Oh, definitely. And because part of what we do is because they've got these companies have sometimes hundreds of thousands or millions of sales representatives in 20, 30, 50 countries around the world, we can't just give them a list of everyone that's going to quit, right? Because right. that list might be 100,000 people. Yeah. And they're not going to call 100,000 people today. <laughs> no one's got a call center that big, yeah. I don't think, anyway. <laughs> and so... And so what they've got to do is they've got to prioritize that list. And so part of how we do that is by telling them how much revenue that rep has been responsible for to date and how much revenue we project that rep will will bring to the company if they can keep them on board. So when they see some of these ultra high value targets, we could see a rep that literally could be worth a million dollars in the next 12 months if you can keep them on board. So there could literally be a million dollars riding on saving one person. So is there a huge, um, huge demand for good direct sales people? I mean, is there great competition between different companies to get these great people on board? That's a really, really interesting question. So the demand is certainly high. So you've got thousands of companies all over the world. There's, 100 million direct sellers out there. More and more uh, companies are looking at direct selling as a very interesting way to grab a lot of market share at a, at a relatively low cost. And um, uh, some people are calling it social selling these days because social media is really a, sure. a main part of a modern direct selling uh, distributor's business and the way that they find customers and recruit other uh, people into the business. So uh, the short answer is yes, there is uh, a lot of competition, but there's there's a couple of studies that have been done in the U.S. market that show that it's kind of interesting and the companies weren't thinking this was happening, but the average direct seller in the U.S. actually sells for more than one company at the same time. Oh, really? So they might be um, having a party at their house selling Mary Kay jewelry, uh, I mean Mary Kay uh, makeup, makeup, but also having Stella and Dot jewelry um, at the party at the same time and offering both uh, to their friends that they've invited for a party. Okay. <laughs> that complicates things a bit. So what, what, um, 
where do you get your information? So you, you somebody comes along, T-Mobile T or someone comes along and says, we want to use your services. Where do you start? So for us, um, let's say let's say it would be a direct selling company. So I could yeah. use, um, you know, like an Amway or an Herbalife or, okay. or someone like that, a brand that people would know. Um, they'd come to us and essentially what we do is we ingest the data of basically the last three to five years of every sales rep that's been recruited uh, into the business. Okay. And it takes us about 60 or 90 days for our data scientists to kind of mull through the data, kind of figure out the pattern recognition and come back to companies with two different things. One is this prediction of churn and proving to them that we can in fact predict this and that, and that we can show them who's going to quit and who to target first and help them prioritize that list of retention toward the highest value targets. And then we also do what we call a behavior segmentation analysis. So basically what that does is help them understand all of the different ways that their distributors all over the world are actually doing the business and helping them put these different distributors into different behavioral buckets so that they can, instead of sending a kind of one message to rule them all, they can communicate to different groups of distributors based on where they are and where, what they, how they do the business. So, for example, some people might be very casual. They might do business on weekends and maybe have one party a month and invite a few people over. And if they make $500 a month, they're happy. And some other people might want to make $5,000 or $10,000 or $20,000 a month. Right. And so you can imagine the message that would motivate the person who wants to make $10,000 a month could be that same message could intimidate the person that wants to make five hundred and vice sure. versa. Sure. And so when they don't know the difference between who's in which bucket and how to communicate with them, they have to try to make one message that, that resonates with everybody and invariably it resonate it ends up not resonating with everybody. I and so we help them that. understand that more clearly. Yeah, different things motivate different people. What um, Exactly. So what did you do before you got into direct marketing or direct selling? So I've been involved in a lot of different technology businesses. Um, I started my career originally in film and media and got into the digital space and started building some of the first um, iPhone apps during, you know, iPhone version two and three yeah. very early on in the iOS days and uh, started making web series and all kinds of online content for different brands and then fell into the startup world uh, with my first company. And um, we um, sold that um, a couple, about a year and a half ago. And uh, then I discovered uh, direct selling uh, as a part of that journey with that company and really just kind of fell in love with it. Um, I'm still involved in other spaces. So I sit on a few different advisory boards of various different uh, technology companies in, in e-commerce and B2B stuff um, that I find really interesting. Some are more cause-based. Um, but really my heart has stayed here for the last seven years or so. What do you find so fascinating about it? It's the now, it's, it's not really the direct selling, is it? It's the it's the um, um, analytics and the um, science behind it that appeals to you, isn't it? It's well, you know, back at the beginning when you were introducing me, you were saying how much I like to understand what makes people tick and why they do what yeah. they do. And uh, I, the thing that fascinates me about direct selling, yes, is the analytics and, and, and that stuff is so fascinating to me, how predictable we all are really, which is kind of scary and interesting and fascinating all kind of all at the same time. Yeah. But the other, the other part of it is that um, these direct sellers are, it's a very, very interesting kind of slice of, of, of the pie of the world of people. Um, I like to call direct selling the last truly democratized opportunity. Um, it really is the, one of the only places I've seen in the world where it doesn't matter where you come from, what kind of education you had, who you know, or anything. If you're willing to work hard and learn, you can elevate the socioeconomic status of yourself and your family. And that is kind of a double-edged sword because you end up getting this massive mixed bag of people from all over the world with all different beliefs and cultures and levels of understanding and expertise and, uh, and of all different kinds of things. In, in many companies and parts of the world, people aren't even literate and they're doing this. And so how do you understand these people? How do you serve them? How do you help them do what your, what your opportunity is, is promising? And, and uh, when there's such a vast sort of swath of them, 
Right. And uh, that's that's one of the things that makes it really interesting and fascinating to me. Wouldn't would the same technology be able to be used um, the next step on so that you can better analyze the people that the traits of your salespeople and and the traits of the people they're selling to to get a better mesh? Yeah. Well, actually, part of what we're trying to do is, um, so the direct selling world has been under some scrutiny recently because there have been a couple of companies that were bad actors and that, and there was a whole Wall Street thing with Herbalife who just settled with the FTC and it turned out that they weren't uh, they weren't doing what some people thought they were doing, but but they did need to change some of their practices, and they end up ended up paying a, a two hundred million dollars settlement fee with the FTC, which is starting to change the landscape uh, of the space, and making companies have to really create a, a difference between who can sign up to be a distributor to actually sell the product, and who can sign up to be a customer, and no longer allowing a meshing of the two. Right. Um, a lot of companies were. Uh, just kind of signing up everybody to be a seller. And then if they never sold anything, they would still get a discount on the product and they could just be kind of like a Costco discount buyer. Yeah. And they never sold anything to anybody. Right. But the government is saying, no, you can't do that anymore. You've got to create that separation. And we think that's a really interesting opportunity for our technology because there's a way to do that intelligently and there's a way to do that by what you think you should do, right? And yeah. with data, we call it data science because we take a scientific approach to it, meaning we don't have any kind of preconceived notions about what the data is going to show us. We just take all the data in and we let the science and the analysis show us. And what we're trying to do next is we call, we call it the distributor genome project is understand the ingredients of what makes somebody a successful seller. So that when we're looking at someone that we want to bring into the business, we can predict where they're going to be best served and where they're going to generate more revenue for the company as a salesperson or as a customer. Because a lot of people right now come into a direct selling opportunity recruited as a salesperson, feel that pressure, realize they weren't set out for it in the first place, and then quit and don't stay a customer anymore either. Right. And so and that could happen in 30 days. And so what if that same person would be channeled into the customer channel and stay on board for 18 months? Yeah. Their lifetime value to the customer would be 18x that yeah. one month of them as a, as a salesperson. Sure. And so part of what we want to be able to do is predict that on the way in. Where is this person going to be best served in the business, as a customer or as a recruit? Okay. So where does um, Michael, Michelle, and your company go from here? Where do you, where do you go? What's next? What's on the big horizon? So for us, um, we're working to get market share in the direct selling space. We're a new company. We just announced ourselves a few months ago to the market. And so we're just bringing our first few companies on board. But we see this really uh, moving on um, in a few years outside of direct selling. Um, as you know, the 1099 economy, especially in the U.S., is growing. Yeah. Um, we're expecting over 50% of Americans to be working as independent contractors in the next few years. And we're really targeting that market of helping companies understand their independent contractors uh, better so they can serve them better, motivate them better, and create better win-win scenarios for them and their independent contractors. So what's the, what's the best, the ideal client for direct tech? Who's the, what sort of size company? Um, what's it, what, what would be your ideal client? Well, in the beginning, um, we look for companies that are, I'd say, on the top sort of half of the size in the direct selling scale. Um, because we're just building our algorithms and just building our models out, they're a lot more accurate with bigger sets of data. Sure. So our ideal customer is going to be a direct selling company that has had I'd say at least 50 to 100,000 distributors pass through their business um, over the last three to five years. So it's got to be a company that, A, is at least three to five years old and has reached you know, a, a considerable size, but not you know, massive, not in the millions or hundreds and hundreds of thousands of people. Okay. Any, any particular industry, but ju just as long as they're direct selling? Yeah, uh, direct selling really is what we're focused on because what we're looking at is the behavior of independent sellers and how to predict that behavior in advance. And so while the types of products and services that they sell are definitely a part of the equation, they're only a, they're only a small part. So th theoretically, you could 
analyze potential clients and analyze potential direct sellers and ideally match them together so that you've got the right personalities selling to the right personalities. That's right. And, and when we, and when we start to be able to do that, what we do is we, is we end a lot of that scrutiny that we've been seeing from wall street and from the, uh, the government, um, because we start to see that we can predict who is, who is best suited to actually sell for our company so that us and our distributor are distributors aren't wasting time trying to motivate people that are never going to do anything, which is uh, the vast majority of, of people that get recruited. And so we end up, um, making the people that we do have a lot more successful, a lot more money. We don't have to manage nearly as many of them because we've kept the ones that actually generate volume and the ones that don't end up being customers. And so, we, and, and so then we also end up with a lot more retail customers. Yeah. Are there, so it really is a win-win. Are we um, into a period where more and more people are open to being direct sold to? Is that, is that growing because of the um, multitude of channels that we're being hit for, from now these days? I think so. I, th- I think it's a matter of training, right? I mean, we all know in marketing that word of mouth is definitely the most powerful form of marketing. And, sure. And, and nobody can ever argue with that. And direct selling when done the right way really is the sort of ultimate form of word of mouth. Um, the only challenge is when you're dealing with armies of, of sellers who are not necessarily professional salespeople and they're selling to their friends, their families, and their neighbors, you know, there's a way to do that tactfully and that maintains friendships. And there's a way to do that distastefully yeah. that destroys friendships, right? Right. And so, um, you know, a lot of these companies, you know, have training programs, but um, in many cases, they're not mandatory. And a lot of people get very excited. And they don't really know how to sell, and and and, uh, and so they can end up in often oftentimes, um, you know, turning off their friends and family. And so the companies try very hard to train people to to not do that. But uh, you know, they're independent contractors, and so at the end of the day, there's always so much of a of a kind of a rain that you can have on them. Right. So, are you getting into the training space? Is training something that you could do um, based on all the information that you're obtaining from everywhere? I don't think we're going to get into training, although training data could be very important to us. So mm. we have a couple of companies that we're talking about partnering with that do provide uh, online and digital training for direct sellers. And uh, the data that we can get from them about uh, what training these people have gone through and, and what scores they did on various different evaluations and how long it's been since they trained, et cetera, can help us be more accurate in our predictions. Yeah, I I was just thinking that um, the more you know about the um, the person training, and you, the more you understand their psychological profile, then the the um, more information you can impart to them on how they can interact with various people that they speak to. Um, let, let's say they're selling directly. Are there for different? You know, like if you look at NLP and you've got um, simplistically, you've got visual auditory and and uh, kinesthetic. I mean, can you tell from um, when your salesperson begins to talk to a potential customer? Can you use triggers to pull out the way you you may speak to them and, and be more successful? Yeah. So you know, a, a few years ago, I had this idea, and I think that. You know, some companies, and not not that many, and I think that over time we'll be able to uh, drive this more as we start to prove out these models. Um, some companies start to offer and and train their distributors with personality assessments, like the Myers Briggs yeah. uh, type of uh, personality assessments. Yes. There's another one called Strengths Finder. Um, there's one called How to Fascinate that I think is really cool. And um, when they when they start to give these people these analyses. And they take these tests and they, sh- and they give us the data on the type of personalities that these people have. Now, all of a sudden, uh, we have a lot more information on uh, how to motivate these people, how to communicate with them, and can give pointers to the people who are going to be contacting them about how they need to be communicated to and be a lot more specific about that. So, for example, you know, some people really like to listen. Some people really like to talk. 
Yeah. And, uh, you know, that's a very, two very, very different approaches if you're going to sure. try to call them to motivate them. Sure. Yeah, it's interesting because, um, say, myself, as a person that sells one way or another, um, when you're speaking to somebody, if you, um, you can drop, just drop them a simple question. And if they say, I see what you mean, you know, instantly they're a visual person. So now you can lead the conversation using visual terms and you're much more likely to close them. Um, if they say, I hear what you say, then they're obviously auditory and you can take them down a different path. Um, I thought that same sort of approach, obviously much more sophisticated than that, yeah. would, be, would be very effective for you guys. I think so. I, yeah, I think I think that um, you know, as we start to get more and more data, and you know, in the in the era of the quantified self, yeah. um, even some of these direct selling companies now are starting to create a lot of these quantified self devices and, and sell them out into the market through a direct selling channel. And so we've got all this data about people and, and, uh, and, and, and how they're behaving and what they're doing, whether it's a fitness tracker or a heart rate monitor or, or, or something like that. And so it's, it's really endless, you know, the amount of data and the amount of information we'll be collecting about people over time is going to allow us to do some amazing things. And, you know, the technology really itself is neutral. There's no, there's no sure. good or bad about sure. it. It's really about how do people use it. They can use it for good or they can use it for bad, just like it's always been with technology. Yeah. So when you go into a company and you start to talk to them, do you get resistance from the marketing hotshots and people that think they know it all? Or are most companies very welcoming? Yeah. Well, at least the C-suite, they'd be welcoming, I guess. You know, I think it's one of those things where the CEOs really get it because the CEOs are seeing that if they can start to use technology to drive a lot more efficiency uh, through their business and, uh, you know, flip that 80% churn rate to 80% retention, uh, the market cap or valuation of their company is going to go through the roof and grow like by an order of magnitude. And, you know, with the amount of upfront investment that we require being in the small five figures, to get started with us, um, to, for, to just give us the opportunity to prove that we can give value. I think that the C, the C level executives kind of instantly kind yeah. of get it because yeah. it's a worthy bet. You know, I'm betting five figures to make nine, yeah. you know? Yeah. And, okay. um, and so it's no big deal. But then when you start to work your way through the organization, this is something that your audience, um, might find valuable if they're doing enterprise sales. Um, when you're doing enterprise sales, um, you know, the person that you're communicating to um, is only one point of contact of the sale. Yes. That person is going to have to go into the organization and sell you internally to everyone else. Yes. And while you want to be in every one of those conversations, guess what? You're not going to be. Yep. And so you need to really empower your counterpart uh, on the on the other side to either get you on the phone with these people directly as much as possible and with the information and materials needed to, uh, to do the best possible job selling you internally or at least getting you to the point where if they have a doubter that you can talk to them and sell them yourself. They need to be, and yeah. That's the hard part about enterprise sales. It's not selling your point of contact. It's really getting the time and the energy from um, all the other stakeholders um, to believe you and, you know, talking about, yeah, exactly. And then, you know, when you start looking at group dynamics and these companies are groups, you know, there's always going to be someone who's going to be the naysayer. And I encounter that myself and you always get someone who's like, well, you know, I, I, I had had an objection recently and someone said, well, why do you need all of our, all of the data about our reps? Why don't you know exactly which data you need? Yeah. Yeah, I can say and that. And, you know, I had to explain, well, you know, this is science. I'm not bringing any predetermined judgments to the table. I want to get everything. And then when I finish my analysis, I'll tell you what's important and what isn't. Yeah. And then you don't have to give me the not important stuff anymore. <laughs> and okay. um, and so, you know, it, it, it's a challenging uh, topic sometimes. And you're like you were saying, Bob, you're dealing with all different types of personalities. The auditor, some of them are auditory, some of them are visual. You know, some of them want to be the smartest guy in the room and you've got to figure out how to make that happen. And uh, so it's definitely a challenge in, in human interaction. Let's put it that way. <laughs> well, you're obviously very good at it. 
Michelle, thanks very, very much for speaking with me on the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. Now, you can really learn more about Michelle and Direct Tech by going to Direct, D-I-R-E-C-T-T-E-C-H. So that's directtech.com. And I'll be back with more of the Bob Pritchard Radio Show on Voice America Business Network after this short break. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. You are listening to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. To connect with Bob, please send an email to bob at bobpritchard.com. That's bob at bobpritchard.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back to the Bob Pritchard Straight Talking Absolutely No Bullshit Business Radio Show on Voice of America Business Channel. And we're the number one global business radio show for entrepreneurs. And this week broadcasting from Hollywood Boulevard in Los Angeles, where technology meets entertainment. Now, one of the reasons that so many businesses fail is that the entrepreneur tries to wear too many hats. Now, running a business successfully is a bloody complex task and few people are capable of it. There's also an old saying that the team is only as strong as its weakest link. And that is why it's so critical to take a lot of care to build your team. Close friends may be cheap and loyal, but most frequently are not going to cut it. Team building is a time-consuming process and the selection of people with the right talent and the right personality takes a hell of a lot of effort. Now, talented people are a dime a dozen, but um, finding the right people with the right talents and melding them into cohesive team is another thing altogether. It's also important to ensure that all of the team have similar values and goals and they fit the company's culture. The wrong person's like a cancer spreading an infection through the company, while the right fit will build the company, encourage others, and act like a catalyst. It takes a long time to build a strong corporate culture, and a few bad actions can destroy it. Jeff Bezos didn't build Amazon alone. Zuckerberg didn't build Facebook alone. Musk didn't build a space rocket or the best car ever built alone and Steve Jobs certainly really didn't invent anything but they all had the vision, the skills and the leadership qualities to build fantastic teams who built great products. Mike Lazandaritz didn't screw up BlackBerry alone. Jeffrey Skilling didn't send Enron down the tubes alone. They had poor, unmotivated teams with no strong guidance to help them out. Everybody says that they want and need to attract the right talent. But before you look for them, do you know precisely what you're looking for? Not only the skill sets, but the character traits that fit with your corporate culture. Do you even know what your corporate culture is? How do you identify potential employees? You just grab the first person who fits your skills requirements. Do you have your current team take part in the selection process and determine whether they like your choice? So there's a lot goes into getting the right people and your company is a reflection of the skills, moral character and personality of your team under your leadership. If it's a finely oiled machine working to a strong compass, your company's well on the way to success. Now I'm going to see you again next week. In the meanwhile, remember if you're not pushing the envelope and if you're not really living on the edge, then you're taking up way too much space. It's easier and much more rewarding to do the impossible than it is to do the ordinary. Now, I invite you to go to my website, bobpritchard.com, and enroll for my daily newsletter. It takes just 30 seconds to read, and we'll keep you up to date with all the business news that's important. I get emails every day from all around the world saying how much they love the newsletter, so make sure you get it. Next week, I will again broadcast No, I won't. Next week, I will be in Florida. So I will broadcast from Florida, and uh, I will see you again in a week. You've been listening to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. 
Please join us again next Tuesday at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, 5 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Until then, enjoy another week of success in your business and your life.